You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical, backward ass ideals that we have here in the United States. This is episode 172 of American Sex Podcast. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Ken Melvoin-Berg. We're both sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and we are kinky perverts, too, that just so happen to be non-monogamously married to each other. Our guest this week is me! Ta-da! And I'm sorry to say Ken won't be in this episode, but don't worry, you'll get him back next week. This episode is called... BDSM education freestyle. So I flipped on the mic and I stream of consciousness style went from subject to subject. This is usually the part of the intro period of the podcast where I read you the guest bio so you know who you're talking to, right? And I know some regular listeners, y'all know me, but if you're new or maybe you only know me from this podcast, I'll give you a brief reintroduction. I'm Sunny Megatron, but I already told you that. I'm an American College of Sexologists International Certified Sexuality Educator and a Loveology University Certified Relationship Coach. In addition to teaching general pleasure-based sex ed, I'm also a well-known BDSM educator. I've taught and lectured all over the world, you know, from sex shops to sex-positive community centers, dungeons, conferences, universities, etc. I'm also the co-creator and executive producer and host of the Showtime original series, Sex with Sunny Megatron. If you're from outside the U.S., it aired in other countries, too, like Canada and Italy and Australia, uh, Portugal, Poland, Brazil, a couple other places. I don't know, lots of places. I've also won stuff like Expo's Sexpert of the Year in 2021, Kinkley's Sex Blocking Superhero in 2017, and in 2021, this podcast, American Sex, won the ASECT Podcast Award. That stands for American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which they're one of the major certifying bodies of sexuality professionals. So that's pretty cool. I also co-host Open Deeply Podcast, along with sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist, Kate Larie. I'm contributing editor of Expo's Premier Magazine. It's a trade publication for the pleasure products industry, and I write a regular column for Sexual Health Magazine. I also do sexuality professional and care industry training for doctors, therapists, you know, social workers, etc. Most recently, the BDSM unit for Dr. Ava Cadell's Loveology University's Sex Educator and Relationship Coach Certification, plus a unit for the Sexual Health Alliance's Kink Informed Professional Certification Program, the one that's headed up by Midori. And whoo, there's a lot. I do books too. I've contributed to a bunch, you know, Allison Moon's Girl Sex 101, a bunch of other ones. Most recently, last week's podcast, Stefanos and Shay's Creating Captivating Classes. And I'm currently working on my first book, which is Customizable Kink, A Strategic Guide to Erotic Play, hopefully coming in 2022. Whoo, that is a lot, a lot, a lot. I have had another bug up my butt, though, to add one more credential. I don't know if I'm going to do it. We'll see. It might just be a pipe dream because it's kind of cool. Maybe I can make it happen. I don't know. We'll see. I've been thinking a lot lately about pursuing a PhD. 
No joke. But for lots of reasons. But the one thing that really motivated me that made me go, maybe I should really do this. One day, my kids said to me, you know, I'd love to be able to tell people that my mom is Dr. Megatron. So, you know, we'll see. And since I'm laying it all out and reintroducing myself anyway, personal life. I'm queer, consensually non-monogamous, married, BDSM practitioner, biracial. I'm the parent of two adult children. And in kink, I identified as a submissive at first, started out there, but now I consider myself a dominant and more specifically, a psychological sadist. So, hey, hi. So what's this episode about? It's a freestyle BDSM education episode that is packed with lots of things that we often don't hear about in your typical BDSM 101. So I made a quick list of all the points I hit. Ready? Okay. We start off with benign masochism and the neuroscience of BDSM, then myths about sadomasochism and the notion of pain equals pleasure, examining the why behind our attraction to certain kinks, uh, what the relationship between BDSM and sex is, also BDSM and neurodivergent and asexual folks, the differences between subspace and dom space, the impact of community on the BDSM subculture and how it trickles down to you, platonic kink and the dynamic escalator, types of kinksters, how rampant misinformation on the internet about kink is causing people harm. It's bad, y'all. And finally, I talk about consensual non-consent, plus the latest research on fantasies about for sex, aka what's called rape fantasies. There is so much more. I made a list that I didn't get to in this conversation. So if you want me to do a part two, if you're like, this is pretty good after you listen to it, let me know. Tweet me, send me an email, whatever. Okay, so before we get to all of this juicy goodness, let's wash the balls, which is what we call housekeeping here on American Sex. Uh, the first thing, hey, do you know what time it is? It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. Big, huge welcome and heartfelt appreciation to Steffi, Amanda, and to Cyan for becoming recent American Sex Podcast Patreon members. And if you're like, what, Patreon? What's what's this? What's this all about? I want to do that. Good news. You can become an American Sex Podcast Patreon member. You just have to go to patreon.com slash American Sex, and I will give you stuff too, like bonus audio from our guests, extra episodes, all of our regular episodes early, American Sex Podcast stickers I'll send you in the mail, a shout out on the podcast, and more. Ken and I give the majority of our content away to the world for free, which is a lot more than just this podcast. So because we believe these conversations are critical, they are so important and everybody should have access to them. By supporting us, you allow our content to remain free for everyone. So again, head to patreon.com slash American sex. And the last thing, head to our show notes. You can find them at americansexpodcast.com or in the episode description on whatever streaming service you're listening to right now. Why? Because all the links I mentioned in this episode, they're right there in the show notes, plus discounts, all those other sorts of things, and the link to our sex and kink positive discord server. And we'd love for you to join us there too. And 
lastly, oh, I said the last thing was the last thing, but this is the real last thing. The last, last thing in those show notes, you are going to find the link to sign up for my newsletter, which you're going to want to find out when I'm announcing the details of my latest project. I'm hosting my own virtual BDSM and pleasure education classes. I always teach for other people. Now I'm doing it on my own. And for my BDSM track alone, I have 12 classes planned. I'll be teaching them weekly or biweekly. I'm still working out the details, but I'm doing them in order. So you can take them all or just take the ones that you're interested in. Hopefully that's starting in November, maybe early December, you know, still working out the details, but you're going to want to know about it. And I'm going to send out emails about that. All right. The balls are clean. Let's get to it. BDSM education freestyle. So excited because on the line is nobody because our guest today is me. I know it's a little weird. I'm sitting here alone in a room by myself, but it's going to be good. So the last few days, I have this notebook beside me. And every time a kink topic popped into my head, you know, something that I thought was a myth that needed to be busted, or something that really had a bug up my butt this week or whatever, I just jotted it down on this piece of paper. So I have this list, and I'm just going to go down the list and start talking about each one. You ready? First, uh, this is for you vanilla folks. You criticize us kinksters when we are into kinks that are disgusting or extreme in some way, whether that's physical edge play, whether that's mental edge play. Think about extreme fear play or uh, extreme sadomasochism. Or extreme disgust play, like playing with urine, water sports, or scat, which is poop. Wham, wet and messy, also known as splashing, like rubbing food all over. When we get into that stuff, y'all are like, you are disgusting. I don't know what's wrong with you kinky people. I would never do that. I don't understand why you find it sexy, blah, 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 blah. So I have one thing to say to you. Well, a bunch of things to say to you. Explain to me this. Vanilla Criticizer, Dr. Pimple Popper, why do y'all love watching some lady, I love her, but squeezing gross pus out, out of people's bodies? That's not gross. What about Fear Factor? How long was that on the air? People eating maggots and blah. You go to escape rooms. Uh, you play intense practical jokes on each other that are like horrible. Someone thinks they're losing their house or someone's died, like they're crying. And then Ashton Kutcher pops out of a bush like you're punked. And immediately everybody's laughing. They're like, that was so good. I believed you and I thought I was dying. Why do you like that? Or bungee jumping. Movies that evoke intense emotion like Steel Magnolias. I'm sorry. I've seen that movie a lot of times. Every time at the end. I sob, not just tear, but I, I am making, no <laughs> it's horrible. Or how we all just sat there in this really fucked up emotional state when the movie Midsummer ended and we were frozen staring at the screen like, what the fuck was that? Ghost pepper challenges. Why are you eating that stuff? You're crying. You're throwing up. You're like, yeah, I'm going to do it again. 
roller coasters, polar bear plunge, tough mudder. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. You do all this stuff. It's pretty gross, weird, extreme, unpleasant, but you criticize us. Well, there's now some science behind this. There's a guy named Paul Rosen. He's a PhD. He's a psychologist out of the University of Pennsylvania. He's been studying this phenomenon. He calls it benign masochism. Mm-hmm. Told you, we're not so weird. Basically, it's human nature to seek out very extreme physical or emotional situations. Our bodies react. They go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, you know, fuck is in there sometimes. All these things are happening. It is a cocktail of chemicals. Our nervous system goes into hyperdrive. But what we like about it, these people theorize, is that our bodies are going haywire and panicking, but our brains know that we're safe. It's like a safe threat. And we get off on the feeling of mind over body, but it also does line up with some of the other research that has come out along these lines. One specific to BDSM, the science of BDSM research team out of Northern Illinois University, headed up by Dr. Brad Sagarin. They've been studying this stuff for a while. They have determined the role of cortisol and stress in our altered states of consciousness, top space, subspace, etc., And it's stuff we already instinctively knew, but it's nice to have the science behind it. And that seems to go sort of hand in hand with what they're finding here. So this new research has found that when your body goes into hyperdrive and your nervous system starts freaking out, activity decreases in your frontal lobe. And your frontal lobe is like your thinking logic command center of your brain. And at the same time, activity increases in the limbic region, which is like emotion central. It is, think of the amygdala. The amygdala does the fight or flight, but it also does the, holy shit, I'm emotionally triggered and I am going to respond with an emotionally driven knee-jerk reaction. Sometimes it's maybe not the best, but we just, we can't help it. And this lines up with the other research that's out there. This is exactly what the Science of BDSM team found, that it's very similar to what happens with marathon runners, their runners high, that altered state of consciousness. It's very similar to people who are yoga practitioners or do meditation, that sort of thing. So, hmm... When we are physically stressed, we're less rational, we're more emotional, we really fucking enjoy it, we really enjoy the mind over body, we enjoy the cocktail of chemicals physiologically going on in our body from endorphins to adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, cortisol, uh, endocannabinoids, all sorts of stuff. We get a high off of it. So vanilla folks, you're just like us. Huh. And I'm going to keep going with the science theme because these kind of go together, even though they're a different order in my list. I'm rearranging them. I'm using my frontal lobe to logically arrange that. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, there are a lot of reasons that people do BDSM. 
lots of reasons. And we don't really have the science to back up the benefits that we know we're feeling. It's like, we don't need science to tell us this shit feels good. But there's a lot of theories happening. And I really feel in the next few years, couple of decades, we'll have a lot of these answers. So along the same lines of what we just talked about, there are a lot of folks that like receiving pain. So they're masochists. And they like receiving pain because they it has an analgesic effect. It actually relieves their chronic pain. We don't know why this somatic effect that appears to be healing therapeutic in some way happens. One of the theories is, well, perhaps those who receive flogging, let's say, are actually getting a fascial massage. If they have connective tissue disorders or something that involves that part of the body, that might be a therapeutic massage. Some say that BDSM can improve vagal tone. There's also a theory that BDSM can help complete the stress response cycle. I talk, talk a lot about that in my classes, and I'm, I'm not going to like hash out a whole class here. Read Emily Nagoski's and Emily's sister, and I can't remember their name. They wrote a book on burnout, and they talk about that. It's basically, evolutionarily, we, if we had a threat, it was a real physical threat, like an animal was going to eat us, and we had ways through the natural process of trying to get away to calm our nervous system. Now in this modern day, our stresses, our student loans and COVID and politics and our in-laws and things like that. And we can't run away from them like we would run away from predators thousands upon thousands of years ago when we were hunting and gathering. So we're at this constant state of heightened stress and our nervous system is completely wound up. So in in the burnout book, which I highly recommend reading, by the way, they talk about different ways you can regulate your nervous system and get to a state of calm again. And it's theorized that BDSM can be one of those ways. However, there's something really interesting about chronic pain specifically that people are using BDSM for. I'm talking extreme pain. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, well, one, one small example is flogging. I'm all about that. I am a dominant, but please flog me. Flog me every day. It is the best massage ever. It's better than one of those percussion massagers. There is some kind of physical healing, therapeutic, feel-good, whatever effect on the chronic pain that I have in my body. That's That's my opinion. That's my experience. It's not scientific, but I'm just telling you that. But so I know folks that do hook suspensions. If you don't know what that is, it's like big giant hooks that they will pierce you with in on your shoulder blades. You can do it on your knees, different parts of your body. And these hooks are on wires and you hang and swing and blood is dripping. It looks painful. These are also things that have been done for probably thousands of years. There are indigenous people do this as a practice. I don't know much about it, so I don't really want to speak on it. But BDSMers, by any means, were not the first people to think of this. There's this neurological theory, you know, that what fires together wires together. And basically, that's neuroplasticity. 
And it means if you have a certain, let's say, a certain thought process or a certain way that you process pain, and, and you repeat that over and over and over and over, the neural pathway that carries that information kind of gets ground in. And it's hard to change either your pattern of thinking from that or the way your body is processing something, et cetera. So I've known folks that do hook suspensions because they have chronic pain and it relieves their chronic pain for weeks, weeks, six, eight weeks. I feel, yes, it hurts to do the hook suspension, but guess what? Afterwards, it has some kind of pain relieving effect. And the question is, why? So just like the neuroplasticity with with thoughts or or whatever, it's the same thing with with pain pathways, right? Every time you feel the pain, the same same pathways are stimulated in your brain, right? And as a result, this pathway becomes embedded, ingrained in your brain. And the brain starts signaling more neurons like, hey, pay attention to this pain. Hey, react to this pain. Hey, painful stimulus. And hence chronic pain. Just horrible, 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 horrible. You have this over, over sensitized nervous system. So the theory is that when you shock your system with extreme pain or any kind of extreme stimulus, it sort of reboots it. It rewires it a bit. It gets your body using different neural pathways. Hmm. Now, again, this is not my professional area of expertise. I am not a neurologist. I'm not even a scientist. I'm just a geek that loves to read about this stuff. This has not been proven. These are theories. Science could come out tomorrow going, oh, all of this is bullshit. These are just interesting tidbits to make you go, huh, that's all. But it also falls into the same bucket as the recent theory in the mental health field that uh, potentially fibromyalgia, maybe not always, maybe sometimes, again, I'm not the expert, and this is just a theory, they're, they're the experts, but they don't know either, that um, that chronic pain from fibromyalgia is theorized to maybe be tied to damage or dysregulation of the body's pain mechanism from caused by emotional trauma. So, hmm. And I know people, again, anecdotally in my personal life that do suffer from chronic pain from fibromyalgia, et cetera, that really like to have that masochistic session. And they feel that it sort of reboots or resets their system temporarily. So again, I'm not an expert. I'm not saying this is the absolute truth but it's something to make you go, hmm. And I should probably add just a disclaimer. I am not telling you to go out and, I don't know, hit your toe with a hammer or anything. So just, you know, be be logical with this stuff. But I also just found out about another study. I paused and I just pulled it up on my Google PubMed study. You can find it's called Adapted Cold Shower as a Potential Treatment for Depression. And uh, I will put that link in the show notes, but it's an interesting, it's it's not exact, but basically they are uh, 
treating people with clinical depression with cold showers of 20 degrees repeatedly. And they do this for several weeks to several months. And I have the abstract up, and here's just the important part I'm going to read, that the evidence they found appears to support this hypothesis that exposure to cold is known to activate the sympathetic nervous system and increase the blood level of beta endorphin and noradrenaline and to increase the synaptic release of noradrenaline in the brain as well. Additionally, due to the high density of cold receptors in the skin, cold showers expected to send an overwhelming amount of electrical impulses from peripheral nerve endings to the brain, which could result in an antidepressive effect. A little bit later, it says the therapy was also found to have had a significant analgesic effect, and it does not appear to have noticeable side effects or cause dependence. And the conclusion is they want more studies to support the hypothesis. Again, do not get hypothermia and say, well, this podcast told me, do not do that. But again, this is just another piece of evidence from the vanilla world that maybe some of what we're doing does have positive effects on our bodies, on our mental state, etc. And one more thing along these lines, this is on my list, about masochism. There is a huge misconception that masochists enjoy pain. If you hear BDSM 101 or mainstream explanations of BDSM, they will say, oh yeah, masochists, they actually, their bodies are wired funny. They feel pain as pleasure. They enjoy pain. Uh, Not necessarily. That is a real oversimplification. Do some masochists enjoy receiving pain? Absolutely. But is that the case for every single masochist? Nope. Kink is customizable. I say it all the time. And because kink is customizable, there are an infinite number of benefits, of reactions, of outcomes that are very dependent on each person who happens to be playing. So we can't put them all in a bucket and say, oh, this causes that. This is the reason for that all the time. It just it doesn't work that way. But this notion that, oh, masochists are just wired funny. They feel pain as pleasure. Sure, might that be a weird way of explaining some people's experiences? Yeah, okay. But again, it's still a weird way. It's kind of making it like masochists are plumbing. And when they put the sink in, they got the cold water and the hot water mixed up. So they're opposite. It's not really like humans don't quite work like that, but we get what you mean. What we tend to see, though, is there are plenty of masochists that don't have a super high pain tolerance, like the the myth is. Some do, of course, but some have a low-ass pain tolerance, just like you and me. And guess what? When they feel that pain, it fucking hurts. They don't like it, but they do it for other reasons. Oftentimes, I'll hear people say, I do it because Afterwards, I feel good. And they don't really know why. And do we really need to know why? 
for some folks, it takes the sexiness and the fun out of being like, let's sit here and psychoanalyze her. Blah, blah, blah. Look at the science. Like, science isn't sexy. I'm a geek. I do think science is sexy. But these folks just say, I don't know why I like it. I just feel good afterwards. Some folks say that they like the challenge. They like pushing their bodies to accept different challenges. And if you're like, whoa, wait a minute, that's unhealthy. Okay, triathlete. Okay, marathon runner. Um, there are some people that like to push their bodies. And be, if they're pushing their own limits, and they are doing it consensually, and they are in charge of it, and they are not being reckless, just like the triathlete person or the marathon runner or the, you know, whoever, it's the same sort of concept. And there are other reasons too. Open your mind a little bit about masochists. They aren't sinks that got their plumbing crossed. And when you turn on the hot water, they have an orgasm. It can be a lot more complex and individualized than that. I want to reiterate again about the why behind kinksters doing what they do. If you're a kinkster and you're like, hey, I do this because it's a form of relaxation. It's a form of escapism. I can turn my brain off and I don't have to think. And I don't want to sit here and analyze what's it doing to me. Why? All I know is I like it and it feels good. So if you're not a kinkster, know that most kinksters are just doing it because they like it and it feels good. And sometimes it makes them feel tingly in the pants. And sometimes it makes them feel tingly in the brain. But we don't have to know the why to reap some of these benefits. Are these benefits that I've been talking about happening all the time to everyone? Probably not. Can I tell you how often they happen? I have no idea. All of this stuff is just theories anyway at this point, right? But if it is happening, if you are reaping those benefits, you don't need to know they're happening and you don't need to know why. It's sort of like your computer, you know, you're doing your work and an update pops up like, oh, there's a, a you know, systems update, operating system update that is going to be happening right now. But don't worry, it's happening in the background. So you can keep working, you can keep playing your World of Warcraft or whatever you're doing, enjoying yourself, kicking back, getting down with your escapism. While this system improvement is happening silently, and you don't know what's going on. So that is pretty freaking cool. And I also want to go back. Now I, I am freestyling because this isn't even on my list. I'm just like, oh, this reminds me of that. And I got to mention this. And I, I'm in the zone. I'm in the flow. It's like top space, but for teachers and podcasters. About the tingly pants and the tingly genitals. I want to mention that BDSM isn't about sex. And oh, what? Oh, if you're a kinkster and you've been a kinkster for a while and you've done a lot of reading and you're really familiar with the different benefits that all sorts of different people get out of kink, this isn't news to you. If you're not that familiar with kink, you might be like, what? All the things I see in the magazines and the movie, it's all sex. What do you mean it's not about sex? Sex is one tool that you can use. You know, in your kinky toy box, you might have a flogger and some rope and a Wartenberg pinwheel and a violet wand and all sorts of different things. One of those things in your toolbox is sex. 
just like you can choose to use a flogger or choose to not use a flogger, it's the same thing with sex. Sex is just a tool. And of course, you negotiate with your partner what you're going to use and not use. That's that's. I'm assume y'all know that. You did your your basic BDSM 101s, but even with the sex or any physical sensory stimuli that we are doing in BDSM, especially if we're doing it in a dominant submissive framework where we have that that psychological power play going on, oftentimes with that kind of play, we're using all of these physical tools and all of this, this physical sensory stimuli to affect the emotional and physiological roller coaster that we're going on. All of those neurochemicals and hormones, uh, maybe some of these somatic effects that are happening to the body, our emotional states, all sorts of things, we're using that physical stimuli as a tool to affect that. Is that every single 100% kink scene of all time? No. There are some times where it's like, yeah, you're just going to enjoy this flogging. We have no power play going on. There isn't a psychological element. So that might not be so much at play. But those of you who play DS, you know, authority transfer, that stuff's happening too. And that's pretty cool. That's also another reason why in the kink community, you'll see a lot of people who are on the asexual spectrum. I've heard people say, that, oh, the kink community is such a sexually charged community, asexuals aren't welcome. And it's actually quite the opposite. There are lots of asexuals in the kink community because, again, you don't have to use sex. Because of our negotiation and everything that gets talked about and parsed out ahead of time, you can negotiate, you can say, hey, I don't want sex with my BDSM. And that's not unusual. There are plenty of allosexual people, which are people who normally have sexual attraction, that still don't like to mix their kink and their sex together. So for a lot of people on the asexual spectrum who are kinky, it's a way to get that physical sensory stimuli in a non-sexual way. It's a way to get intimacy, to connect with others, all of those other benefits that we've been talking about without having to have sex. And I'm still uh, freeballing, freestyling. I don't know what we're calling this. But that also reminds me of neurodivergent people in the kink community. There are a lot of us neurodivergent folks in the kink community. I'm neurodivergent myself. Nonverbal learning disorder, which is sort of a mashup of some symptoms of ADHD, some symptoms of autism spectrum with a lot of spatial difficulties. And I also have ADHD. I do want to throw out a caveat that my profession and my training is in sexuality education and kink education. I am not professionally a uh, neurodivergent specialist, etc. I highly suggest giving a follow to Katie O. Katie and Eric have a podcast called Infinite Quest. They talk a lot about neurodivergence, specifically ADHD, 
along with Kink. They've also been on American Sex Podcast a few times. You can go look up those episodes. They were very insightful. But I will give you some of my experiences being a neurodivergent person and practicing BDSM. I really found that when I found BDSM, I actually found my people, I found my communication style, I found where I fit. And a lot of it really does have to do with not only the communication, but the emotional relating to people in the community, especially play partners, the framework, the expectations, etc. So first is the clear communication. There was no more guessing, no more nonverbal issues. I have a lot of problems parsing out nonverbal language, very similar to somebody on the autism spectrum. And I dating, you know, the flirting, the innuendos, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, okay, what's going to happen at the end of the night? I don't know. Am I picking up the signals right? Is this going to happen? I don't know. Oh my goodness. In kink, you can just sit down with a pad of paper and be like, let's talk about exactly what how we're feeling and what we want to do and yada, yada. Another thing I really love about kink as a neurodivergent person is I have the permission, just the support of the people I play with and the culture of the community gives me the permission to stop and advocate for my needs. In the neurotypical vanilla world, if I have something weird that's happening, oh, hey, I need you to do X, Y, Z for me, or I have to stop and do, you know, yada, I have a sock bunchy, which happens, like, I'm having a sensory issue. Vanilla people just think I'm weird. But in the kink community, I can stop and say, hey, I have this weird boundary. I have this weird thing I have to stop and do. And nothing is weird. You know, the consent culture in the kink community normalizes advocating for yourself and not having to explain why, not having to feel that your thing is weird. And also, you get praised for advocating for yourself. That is everything for me being kinky. Also, when it comes to scenes, I like playing with different emotions, uh, different interpersonal approaches to relationships and relating to different types of people. I oftentimes will call scenes, I, I am a psychological sadist. I started out submissive. I am now mainly dominant, uh, pretty much all dominant. Um, and I call doing scenes an emotional test kitchen. Because I get to try on different personalities, different approaches, different things that I might be afraid to do in the real world, because it could really screw something up, right? I could be embarrassed, I could actually mess up a relationship. But in the safe container of kink, this is negotiated play. Even if I get it wrong, it's okay. There aren't any real world consequences. So when it comes to being neurodivergent, you hear a lot about masking, how you pick up different behaviors and different uh, ways of going about things that neurotypical people do so you can blend in. So relating to masking 
it can help me pick up new ways to mask out in the neurotypical world. It can also help me unmask to try to find my true self because I've spent a lifetime masking. Sometimes I don't really know who am I? What really do I want? I have a hard time understanding emotions, probably because of my neurodivergence. And then on top of it, I've been masking and hiding my emotion. I don't know what I'm feeling. So playing with those things in my emotional test kitchen really helps me figure out those patterns and to parse out those tools that I can use in the real world. It also helps me with decoding emotional states and behavior patterns in other people. So I navigate peopling. I navigate social situations, not like your neurotypical person would. You just kind of know how to get along. You know the the nonverbal, unwritten rules, the 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 etiquette, that sort of thing. And I was always clue. I had no freaking idea. I had to learn everything the hard way. And how I learned was by analyzing and memorizing patterns, patterns in people, patterns in social interactions, et cetera. Now I have a real, I'm really good at it now. I went from not having a clue to spending, I'm 50. I spent 50 years building this database of patterns and behaviors and, and how people tick. So now I, it's like a superpower. I can read people to the point of spooky. I heard someone recently on TikTok saying that I've, I've learned to read humans source code. I've learned to read people and, and understand people way better than they can understand themselves. And when you just do that to people, without consent, like, oh, hey, you know, the reason you flew off the handle is because you feel that you're losing control with blah, 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 blah. I'm sure people who are mental health professionals also might be able to relate to this. You can't just go laying that on people. They get pissed off. But in kink, oh my God, it is the best mind fucking tool ever. I am a psychological sadist. That's what I do. I get to use that whole database that I've spent my life building, all of that source code that I can read, and I can use it to fuck up your shit consensually, of course. And it's amazing. There are a lot of other benefits to the kink community when it comes to neurodivergent folks, especially when it comes to ADHD and and other things. But that's my experience. And I found that there are a lot of neurodivergent people in the community. And speaking of community, I am totally freeballing. Is that where every, am I not spitballing, freeballing, freestyling? I don't know, but it has got me going. I got to talk to you about community too. And I've totally deviated from my list because I am now in a state of flow. I am hitting it. Uh, but now I want to deviate from community and talk about flow because that reminds me of Dom space or top space. Very similar thing happens teaching, talking, lecturing. You get in this teacher top space sort of, and I, th I think I've hit it. So let's talk about Dom space and subspace real quick, and then we'll get to community. 
These are those altered states of consciousness that we were talking about. They are similar but different. They're cousins, right? Subspace. That's what we hear about the most. Trying to explain exactly how subspace affects somebody is sort of like trying to describe an orgasm. Like there are a lot of similarities, but everyone's individual experiences are pretty unique. So subspace is typically induced once our body's chemical balance is altered. You know, all the the uh, endorphins and the adrenaline, all the neurotransmitters, the hormones, all that stuff that we talked about. And it's usually through intense physical or psychological stimulation or both. It, it could be something easy. Sometimes it's like a trigger word or a trigger smell or a type of touch that just puts you right into subspace. A lot of people describe subspace as a disassociative state of euphoria. You know, time becomes distorted, your emotions intensify. For some people, it can feel like being high or drunk. You can get a little dizzy, have incoherent thoughts. Sometimes people become nonverbal, they can't speak, which makes like negotiating safe words a whole thing. But I, I don't want to get off track again, because I'm already supposed to be talking about community. Subspace can skew our perception of pain. It can skew our perception of things that are unpleasant or disgusting and can allow us to tolerate things that are more extreme. Our decision-making ability also is impaired when we're in subspace, and that affects ability to consent, which is why we say, you know, once you're in the scene and you've already negotiated, don't negotiate mid-scene. Because you're both in an altered state of consciousness. Often reaching subspace is the goal of a scene. It's, you know, this out-of-body trance-like experience for some people. It feels good. And just like a lot of the other stuff we've been talking about, a lot of people feel that it can be mentally and physically therapeutic to be in subspace. And as we talked about the science of BDSM team from Northern Illinois University and some of the studies they've done on runner's highs and yada, yada, there's something going on. Uh, look up the science of BDSM team. They they measured cortisol and all sorts of different. I'm not going to get into the science of that because I would have to look it up. I don't remember the exact details, but it's good stuff. Anyway, that floating natural high describes the typical average experience, but it's not everybody's experience. It's not like, again, it's like an orgasm. Some people can have way different orgasms than the average. Sometimes rather than slowing down or feeling intoxicated, woozy, dizzy kind of thing, a submissive could get hyped up or a bottom, submissive or bottom, uh, can get hyped up talking a mile a minute or being really excited or having another atypical reaction. So if you don't react like drowsy, euphoric, that's fine. We're all different. Additionally, you know, there are some people that don't like the feeling of subspace. They avoid it. They don't like it. So that's something you should negotiate. Do you want to go there? And subspace isn't this 
like elusive thing that, oh my goodness, I need to go join a dungeon and get kinky so I can experience subspace. You've probably already unknowingly stumbled upon subspace during vanilla sex. If you have ever had an orgasmic experience that was so intense that it left you like speaking in tongues, right? You don't know which way is up, which way is down, what year it is. What's your name? I don't know. The bed turned into a floating magic carpet and, you know, the skin on your face fell funny. You can't feel your face. What's that song? I sound like a grandma. I know it's a song. That's all I can tell you. But their points during that orgasmic experience, it's like, do I even still have legs? Like, is my body filled with bees? Like, I have been thrust into this altered state of consciousness with no warning, no negotiation, it, you know, fucking confused, but God, I, this feels better than being high off my ass. You know, that, that just happens to you during vanilla sex. You just stumble upon that experience and you just never forget it, right? You don't need orgasms to hit subspace, but you can get to subspace that way. It's a very similar feeling, that blissed out feeling. And the cool thing in kink is like, you don't have to wait for your orgasmic stars to align like you do in the vanilla world. Like, maybe this time will be it. Uh, in kink, you make that shit happen, which is great. Okay, so on to Dom space, which will then lead us to community because I took a detour. But hey, it's cool. Sometimes called top space. And it's brought on by you know fluctuations in those same chemicals, that physiological transformation, the adrenaline, the endorphins, yada, 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 neurotransmitters, dopamine, all the things. And unlike subspace, it doesn't turn our brains and bodies into mush. We're not incoherently babbling. We're not really horrible at making decisions. We don't go nonverbal. It is best described as being in a state of flow. So Dom space is more about like attentive hyperfocus. And we have all reached this state too in non-BDSM context. You know, it might be you're doing a certain physical activity that you're really into. You're immersed in a creative hobby. You're playing World of Warcraft and like throwing heels like nobody's business while the tank is doing their thing. You know, whatever it is, right? You are in flow when you are fully immersed in whatever activity that you're doing at that time. You are 110% in the zone you are, quote, at the top of your game, you know, all of those like obnoxious sports quotes, they're really about being in a state of flow. And although, just like with subspace, individual experiences vary. I'm describing for you the typical, but not everybody is typical. So if this doesn't describe your experience, don't think, oh, I'm not normal. We're all normal. We're also all different. Typically, when one enters dom space, top space, state of flow, etc., ego falls away. You know, the passage of time gets completely distorted. You could be at something for hours and it feels like, oh, it feels like it's only been 15 minutes. You are fully immersed in whatever experience you have. You have unwavering concentration. You feel like you are effortlessly operating at your peak performance. You know, your impact play instruments, your your floggers and, and your canes or whatever might even feel like they've become extensions of your own body. Like you are in it, right? And 
the communication with your bottom or your submissive can get really finely tuned and you feel like you're connecting with them on an intuitive level. Now you, you feel, I said, you feel, um, you, sometimes you might be completely off the mark. So just know that you're still in an alternate state of consciousness, even though you feel that, that hyper attentive, completely in control, totally attuned with who you're playing with, you are still drunk on the brain chemicals. And just like a submissive's reality is skewed when they're in subspace, the same is true in dom space, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though you feel like you have all the confidence and the good judgment in the world while you're in that headspace. It is also not a time for you to make snap decisions about serious things. It is not a time to renegotiate in the middle of a scene. Again, this is why that pre-scene planning when you're in the right headspace and sticking to it is really important. Okay, I had to get that out because I'm in a state of flow. Uh, So now, let's talk about community. know, the shower scene from Psycho? Well, it used to play out regularly in our bathroom from shaving mishaps, but that was before we knew about Manscaped. So thank you, Manscaped, for making sure Ken is no longer the star of our own personal slasher movie. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million people worldwide. Join the movement by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code SUNNY. It's time to end the days of shaving your balls and ending up looking like a horror movie. The folks at Manscaped have the perfect package for your package to get this done. The Below the Waist Grooming Leaders have a fourth generation performance package and inside you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, liquid formulations, and two free gifts. First, it's got my favorite, the Lawnmower 4.0. This fourth generation trimmer also features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. Also included is their Weed Whacker, the nose and ear hair trimmer that is here to whack your weeds and any goblins that come your way. And speaking of your best friends, don't forget to give your testies besties the love they deserve with Manscaped's liquid formulations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Reviver. And Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and the Shed Travel Bag. Get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code sunny s-u-n-n-y at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping at m-a-n-s-c-a-p-e-d.com and use the code sunny if you missed your chance at a summer fling why not make it a freaky fall if you're interested in exploring things like threesomes toy play or edging but you're not sure where to start Dipsy Stories can help you explore all of your desires. Dipsy Stories is an app full of sexy audio stories, and now they even have brand new written stories. No matter who you're into or what turns you on, Dipsy helps bring the stories to life anytime, anywhere. Close your eyes and let yourself get lost in a world where only good things happen and pleasure is your only priority. Explore your fantasies in a safe, 
shame-free way. There are hundreds of stories to choose from, and they release new content every week, so there's always more to explore. And they also have wellness sessions to help you wind down and explore, and sleep sessions to help drift you off. For listeners of American Sex Podcast, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash sunny, that's S-U-N-N-Y. 30 days of free, full access when you go to dipsestories.com slash sunny. That's dipsystories.com slash sunny. I want to be clear that when I'm talking about community, and I've talked about community before in this conversation, or is it a conversation? It's a monologue. I don't know. But I am talking about community from my point of view, which I belong to the pansexual community, which, you know, queer folks, pansexual folks, really, we have very rigid cis het norms, even though we pretend like we don't. Yeah, this community is backwards in a lot of ways. But the things I'm talking about when I say community are referring to that community. And that's pretty much the most visible community when it comes to online interactions, people creating educational content, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the gay male community. There are different kink communities. There is a kink community that is more of like the burner woo-woo spiritual vibe that we don't see a lot represented on mainstream internet. So I want to make that clear. But it might blow your mind for me to say that, guess what? The vast minority of kinksters actually belong to community. Most people who practice kink don't have anything to do with community. And we hear a lot of people saying, you know, giving advice, hey, I want to be kinky. What what should I do? Well, first, find your local community, go to a munch, blah, blah, blah. That might not be possible for people, uh, depending on their personal situation. Maybe they can't be in the public eye. Maybe they've you know, got custody issues. Maybe they live in a conservative area of the country. Maybe they live in an area of the country that doesn't really have community. They're in a cornfield in Nebraska somewhere. Uh, maybe they can't get away or have the time or the finances, the resources, whatever. So first of all, not everybody can join community. So with new kinksters saying, well, that's the first step, find your community, doesn't really apply to a lot of people. But secondly, yeah, community people look like they're it. That's the only way to kink, right? And if someone's kinky, they must want to join the community, right? No, not at all. Uh, The reason that that perception is out there, and I'm guilty of perpetuating it too, is that the community kinksters are like the super passionate ones. It's their hobby. It's their life. They're in service. They're the ones creating the blogs. They're the ones who become creators on social media. Those are the voices that we hear. They're the ones writing the books. They're the ones teaching the classes. So of course, the perception is going to be that, well, in order to be kinky, you have to belong to community. 
And that is absolutely not true. There's also the perception that in order to be a good kinkster or respectable kinkster, whatever, authentic kinkster, that you have to be in it to win it. You have to be in a dynamic. You have to be all this. Absolutely not. You know, we've heard of the relationship escalator in vanilla dating. That means, okay, you date someone after X amount of time, you're exclusive with them. Then after X amount of time, you get engaged. After X amount of time, you move in together, you get married, you have the kids, you buy the station wagon, uh, you have the horrible divorce, whatever comes after that. But there's this expectation. We have to ride that escalator and go up certain steps to be valid in what we're doing. And there's that same escalator in kink. It's a dynamic escalator. Oh, if I'm kinky, I need to find a dominant or submissive or whatever. I need to get into a full-time dynamic I need to strive to be collared. See where I'm going? Same thing. That is not necessary. Just like we balk at that in the vanilla world. Who fucking says I have to get married at such and such and have babies and do all this? I'm polyamorous. I'm gay. I'm whatever. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't need, guess what? I am going to have a platonic life mate and I don't need your bullshit vanilla relationship expectations. It's pretty much the same thing in kink. You don't need to strive for getting into a dynamic as quickly as possible. Dynamics, 24-7 dynamics aren't any more valid than any other type of kinkster. And when you're new to kink, that can be dangerous. You know, think about when you're brand new to dating, whenever you, let's say you start dating at 16, right? Let's say you start dating at 16 and immediately you want to jump into uh, getting really serious with somebody and moving towards getting engaged or married. Oh, hell no. Like, first of all, you don't know that much about people, uh, you know, they say date a few people, what they say, play the field, right? Get to know you, get to know you in this new world of sex and dating. Don't jump into anything too fast because sometimes there are predators that prey on people who are brand new and excited. There's frenzy, you know, your new kink community member, you have that frenzy, whether you're a dom or a sub, where it's like, you want to do all the things right now, all the time, you want to find a partner, you want to play, and oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and it clouds our judgment, it makes us see what we want to see, and makes us ignore the red flags, because we don't want to see them, and that's not really a good state to jump into something with. You are valid in kink no matter what your level is, no matter what your kink lifestyle identity is, I also wholeheartedly believe I am on a mission to normalize platonic kink. Because, hmm, if kink doesn't have to include sex, even let's say you're somebody who's like, I, I like sex with my kink. That's my preference. That's my jam. You can still 
experiment with let's learn how to throw floggers like me and my uh, best friend, you know, I'll have my best friend over on a Friday night, we'll do a little flogging, maybe we'll try a violet wand, and you know, and we'll laugh and we'll giggle and we'll have some wine. And it's not sexy. And it's not a, a, a scene, right? We can do that. Or maybe we can have a scene. But I don't fuck my friend and we won't have sex. We'll have platonic kink. That's perfectly okay. Now, when it comes to kinksters, again, most of them aren't in community. We have the dabbler. Maybe they practice kink on a special occasion every once in a while. It's a partner's birthday, that sort of thing. Completely valid. Then there are bedroom-only kinksters. They only practice kink in the bedroom in conjunction with sex. Completely valid. The classic lifestyler, what I call the classic lifestyler, is somebody who, yeah, maybe they practice bedroom kink if they're sexual people, if they're allosexual. However, they bring some of that dynamic out into the real world, maybe... Uh, during the week, you know, one partner's a dominant and sends texts to the other, oh, you need to do this, or they're task or service-oriented things, non-sexual things, but they don't do it all the time. Just here and there, it bleeds out into their non-bedroom life. And then we've got the 24-7 authority transfer that are in the dynamic all the time. And every single type of kinkster, every single lifestyle identity is just as valid as the other. If you're a dabbler, you are just as valid as someone in a 24-7 authority transfer. If you are somebody who engages in platonic kink, just as valid. If you never want to have anything to do with community, just as valid. And there's a lot of you out there. And if you are a huge part of your community, you're always at events, you're organizing things, just as valid. There are all different types of us out there. So why do I talk about community so much if the vast majority of people who are BDSM practitioners aren't involved in community? There's a big reason. Because those community people are the most vocal. They're the ones with the BDSM blogs. They're writing the books. They are teaching the classes. They are the content creators on social media. The at-home-only non-community kinksters are getting their information online from people in the community. So even if you aren't personally connected to community, you are still very connected to the community subculture, because what that community believes, the trends that are happening in that community, the misconceptions that are happening in that community will bleed down to you if you are getting information on podcasts, right? You know, if you're listening, it's you, right? Books, blogs, etc. So that's why, even if we don't expect all kinksters to be a part of community, Talking about community is still very relevant because community affects you in a very direct but covert way. 
And speaking of community, it leads right into this last thing I want to tell you about, and it is a doozy. So the moral of the story or the pre-moral of the story, the setup of the story, I don't know, maybe my flow's fading a little bit. Words, concepts, you get what I mean. The point of this is when new people find the kink community and even longtime kinksters find kink online. And when I say the community, really, what is the community these days with the internet and everything online and then COVID pushing people online? The community is kind of a misnomer. It might be more of the subculture, the collection of many splintered, ill-defined, dysfunctional communities. Uh, So that's what I mean when I say the community. Oftentimes when we say that, we mean in real life community where you go see people face to face. But these days, yeah, we're all on Zoom and social media. So that definition of community is changing. We'll find out what it becomes. But this community sometimes gets collective ideas that are less ideas and more of just complete myths, things that are totally wrong. And that gets perpetuated and presented, especially to new people or just people searching for information online, no matter how experienced they are, to see this information and say, well, a bunch of people are saying it, it must be true. I'm going to give you a content note at this point that I'm going to be talking about consensual non-consent and the phrase R-A-P-E, play. I'm not going to be getting into detail. I will be talking about those things from a top-level conceptual or theoretical point of view. So about mm, maybe six months ago, I was on TikTok. And those of you who don't know, I create quite a bit of kink content on TikTok, hence hashtag kinktok. I saw a creator that was very popular, a younger femme-presenting person who had a lot of followers, over 100,000, very well-intentioned, but brand new, younger 20s, got a lot of their information from reading blogs online and would rehash it as content on their TikTok. No shame to this person. No, I don't, you probably don't even know who I'm talking about, but this has nothing to do with that person. It has to do with the content that they found. And they're just the first ones that made me realize there was a problem. So this person made a video saying that consensual non-consent, aka CNC, which is a play style or a type of scene or a type of role play, is the same thing as rape role play and only rape role play. And furthermore, in this type of rape role play, it is the rule, the procedure, the protocol, where the submissive, the person being violated, does not get to use safe words. You guessed it, like, I screamed, I dropped everything, I threw everything, I pissed my pants, I might have lost control of my bowels. I was like, oh, hell no! Who the hell is saying that? And 
again, no shame to this person. They took the video down. Cool. But then I was like, okay, uh, this is not the first I've heard of that. Where is this information coming from? And I started hearing more people, not just on TikTok, different places online, that consensual non-consent is only rape reenactment play. And oftentimes these people would say, and also, you don't get to have a safe word. And I'm like, hey, everyone, that is sexual assault. Like, that is rape. As I said, I had seen more and more articles online popping up saying, oh, consensual non-consent, it's rape play, yada, yada. So when I hit Google, the first thing that popped up, the very first search for consensual non-consent is an article from Psychology Today. And a lot of people believe that Psychology Today is a reputable resource. It is actually not really. I'm not saying that every person who writes an article on psychology today is horrible, but there's a lot of inconsistencies there. And some of the articles are not good. There has been issues within the mental health community, within the sex educator community about boycotting that. Like, it's not great, right? So this article was Consensual Non-Consent, Exploring Challenging Boundaries. And the subtitle said, Giving Up the Ability to Use a Safe Word in Kinky Encounters. I said, that's exactly where this false notion is coming from. So I know my way around journalism. I'm the contributing ag- editor to XBiz Premier Magazine. I write a monthly column for Sexual Health Magazine. I, I've written stuff. I, I know how that works. And I thought to myself, the real problematic part is the subheading, giving up the ability to use a safe word in kinky encounters. My hunch is knowing how journalism works, that was probably added by an editor. Probably even the title was was added by an editor, someone who's not experienced in kink or maybe not necessarily sexuality content at all. So I can see how that happened. When I read the article, um, the article was written by a well-respected colleague who is very adept in his area of expertise, very well-respected, etc. However, from what I understand, I don't think this person is entrenched in lifestyle kink. So they may not know the ins and outs and the psychology of new kinksters going online looking for things. So it was written from a very clinical standpoint, talking specifically about rape play, uh, citing some studies. So it sounds very legit. As somebody who is a colleague who's in that industry, I can read that article knowing where he was coming from. But I think what the author didn't bank on was this isn't an article for people who have some sort of base knowledge. This is an article that is for anyone on the internet that ends up being the number one search term on Google for consensual non-consent. And it went straight to only talking about rape play, also talking about people who are in 24-7 dynamics that sometimes in those long-term dynamics, and this is very rare, and I don't advocate anyone doing this, but sometimes couples that have been together for, you know, couples or 
polycules, multiple people, doesn't just have to be two, that have been together for many years, who have spent time developing this trust, will give up their safe words or will give blanket consent to a dominant to make decisions. But there is still always some kind of stop mechanism built in. There is always some way to revoke consent. Maybe in their their particular dynamic, it's not a safe word, but there's something. So the way this article was written didn't explain that, didn't explain, I'm talking about a very small subset of people and the way they do things. So, of course, general public reads this article, thinks, oh, consensual non-consent is rape play and you don't get safe words. I'll tell you what consensual non-consent is. It is any type of scene, role play, dynamic, etc., where saying no and being disregarded is part of your role play. That could be, daddy says, eat your carrots. I don't want to, daddy, you know, in an age play scene consensual non-consent. That could be if you've heard of forced by, you know, and I'm forced in winks, consensually forced, or forced orgasms, orgasm control, chastity, even bratting. If you're saying, no, I don't want to do that, like the carrots example, can be a form of consensual non-consent. Oftentimes, you might see this in uh, a dominant who is monitoring your care tasks, monitoring things that you are supposed to be doing. So I'll give you an example scenario. Let's say I have a dominant and I, I, we negotiate and I say, I really want to get to the gym three times a week and I keep blowing it off and I never do it. I want you to be my gym dom. I want you to make me go to the gym three days a week. And if I don't go, here are the negotiated punishments that you can give me or the negotiated privileges you can take away. Or maybe if I do go, I earn something. That's all negotiated, but that's consensual non-consent because, you know, my dad could say, do you go to the gym? And I'd be like, no. I'd be like, okay, you're going to get punished X, Y, Z. And I could say, no, I don't want to. No, no, I don't want to. No, you have to. But guess what? We still have a safe word. Because sometimes I want to whine a bitch and complain and say no, but I don't really mean it. We do consensual non-consent where no doesn't really mean no in BDSM a lot, even if we don't call it consensual non-consent. That's why we have safe words. Because so much of the time in kink, no doesn't mean no. And Taking it to the extreme of rape play, yes, some people do that. That is one form of consensual non-consent. However, it's one very extreme specialized form that's not for beginners, that takes a lot of planning, and a lot can go wrong. Saying consensual non-consent is rape play is like saying, Let's say I say to you, I just heard about this thing called a knife. And let's say in my world, I've never seen a knife. I don't know what a knife is. Uh, Can you tell me what they are? I'm really curious. And you say, okay, I'll tell you what to do with a knife. You need another person and they need to tie you to a big tree and then they need to blindfold you. And then they're going to take this giant Ginsu and they're going to 
close their eyes and throw it at your face. That's what knives are for. So if I live in a world where I've never heard of a knife, never seen a knife, I'm going to believe you that that is the only use for a knife. What I don't know is that you left out some very important information that, yes, although people can use knives in that way, it is a very small percentage of people. And those people that do that have to be very highly trained. And they have to be prepared. If something goes wrong, it can go really wrong. And you also left out that 99.9999999% of the time when people use knives, they're butter knives and cheese spreaders and Swiss army knives and the little knife that you use to cut your calluses off when you're getting yourself a pedicure. What about all those knives? Plastic knives. There's so many other knives. Right? So saying that CNC is only rape play is sort of the equivalent of that. But how did this happen? Because if you go to the internet and put in what is consensual non consent, you will get pages and pages and pages of results saying it is rape reenactment play. How did this happen? And why did this happen? Well, for a few reasons. First, you have to look at you know, the information that's out there, that Psychology Today article was just one, but there's been others before it. Why do these places on the internet, especially big publications, keep publishing it? Well, it serves them. It's sensationalized. It's, ooh, rape play. I'm going to write an article about that because people are going to click on articles about rape play or about throwing Ginsu knives at pretty ladies, and they're not going to click on articles about cheese spreaders, and butter knives. So they're doing it for the clicks. And they're doing it for the money because clicks equals money. Of course, they're going to keep publishing the most sensationalized thing. And then you may be asking, why is it sensationalized? Why are all these people clicking on articles talking about rape play? Well, let's get to the research. There's a reason. It is one of the number one fantasies, not just among kinky people, among vanilla people too. There's been study after study where fantasies of rape have been the top or near the top consistently for years. The latest was by Dr. Justin Laymiller for his book, Tell Me What You Want, which by the way, Justin's been on the podcast a couple of times, and that is an amazing book. So he surveyed more than 4,000 Americans on their sexual fantasies and talked about being forced to have sex. And what he found was very, very interesting and different than the research we'd known before, which is this is a common woman's fantasy or people who were, you know, assigned female at birth. This one was all-inclusive. 61% of self-identified women had fantasized about this before, while 24% said they fantasized about it often. 54% of self-identified men fantasized about it before, and 11.5% said they did it often. And 68% of non-binary participants fantasized about it before, with 31% saying they fantasized about it often. So yeah, these articles were getting clicks, not just from the kink community, but from everybody. And according to the statistics, especially non-binary people, uh, why? 
because this is one of the biggest sexual fantasies, and it's the one that we collectively have the most shame about. <gasps> How could I want that? What is wrong with me? And when we see an article saying, hey, people do this, it's normal, it's being normalized, it validates us, it makes us feel not so weird, it makes us feel like our fantasies aren't so awful, so of course, those articles are getting lots of clicks, but they're also really misleading people in the kink community, people discovering kink, people wanting to do this and telling them or giving them the impression that they can do it in this very unsafe way. And that causes harm. Then we have people Printing things that misunderstand blogs, content creators, etc. And we even have this snafu with psychology today. And then that becomes what's called a circular reference. Other people are writing articles, maybe big publications, and they go, Well, let me do my research on the internet. And it's all oh, there's all these sources that say it's rape play, and it becomes this runaway car game of telephone. But that's really dangerous to teach to new people that consensual non-consent is not only and always rape play, but in these articles, it's portrayed as pretty damn extreme. If you don't trust who you play with and you're not, I would recommend working with a kink-friendly therapist if you're doing this to get at some sort of trauma that's not any type of play a beginner should be doing. But consensual non-consent in a playful way, bratting, I said no. Or, oh, oh, you're going to get a spanking. Playful, I'm chasing you around the house. No, you're not. You have to catch me. That's consensual non-consent and you're laughing and giggling. Primal play where you're being animalistic and wrestling and taking each other down. Consensual non-consent. So that's my rant. And that's just one of many. When you're a new kinkster and you're on the internet looking for information, there's a lot of bad stuff out there and it causes obstacles in seeking education. It causes harm. If you went and said, oh, this is assault play without a safe word and you did that, imagine all the ways that that could go wrong. It normalizes extreme things that aren't very well thought out as beginner activities and also predators online that are poaching these new people that don't know any better are just waiting to find somebody that believes that kind of thing. And that can be really dangerous. And you'll find that legitimate lifestyle educators, they keep potentially dangerous information like edge play. Consensual non-consent is edge play. It's very serious play that can have dangerous consequences even when you're fully prepared. You'll see that information not up on the internet, but behind paywalls, or you have to go to a class to learn it because you need to know the safety precautions. And it's also a way to protect it from being misappropriated and used from harm. So that's what I'm going to leave you with. Take that with you. I highly recommend Kink Academy for online learning. 
It's wonderful. I also have an affiliate relationship with them, full disclosure. So if you want to get a Kink Academy subscription, it's I think 20 bucks a month. Go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Kink Academy. I'll put it in the show notes. You still pay the same price as if you just would have went directly to their website, but I earn a, a commission and that helps support me. I'm also on the Kink Academy faculty. I have a Humiliation Play series up and an Electric Play series up. And by the way, you know, I said that it's really hard for both new kinksters and seasoned kinksters alike to find really good information on the internet and even really good information in books, classes a little bit better because they're updated for right now. But that's why I'm writing my book. Hopefully it'll be due out next year. It's hard to write a book. It's taking a long time. But Customizable Kink, A Strategic Guide to Erotic Play, it's going to have all this stuff in here. It's going to be updated because people ask me, oh, what's a good 101 book for kink? Well, there kind of isn't one. I mean, parts of this book are okay and parts of that book are okay. And then this website's okay. And I have to send you to 20 different places to pick and choose to get relevant, accurate information. And I'm tired of it. Hence, I'm writing my own book. So keep an eye out for it. So that's where that's where I'm leaving it. And my list is still so long and I don't know what to do. I completely went off script or off list because it's not really a script. I'll tell you some of the things I still have on my list uh, to talk about the nerve endings in genitals and uh, why what's on the internet is totally wrong. Consent styles, SSC, rack and prick. Is aftercare necessary? What are different types of power that we can use in our BDSM scenes very consciously to make very specific outcomes? Then why online BDSM tests suck? The importance of execution and strategy in kink, the subjectivity of humiliation, and why one kink act cannot universally be considered a humiliation act or humiliation scene. I can tell you how to have a farty party. Neon wands and violet wands. I got some tips about playing with piercings. Also, financial domination, edging versus edge play. Why the squirm factor is important. The question, is kink a sexual orientation? How to do kink without DS play? How to configure 24-7 relationships? Is it true? There are no safe words and no limits. And why the phrase, the sub has all the power, is really freaking dangerous. So that's what I still have left on my list. Of course, I'm an over-preparer. Do you want me to do this again? Do you want me to answer some of those questions? Please tweet me send me messages, give me a Facebook message, whatever it is, let me know. And if there are other things you want me to talk about, if you do want me to do and there are other things you want me to talk about, tell me on social media or send me an email at americansexpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see if we can do this again. And if it's a personal advice thing, tell me if I can say your name or what name I can say. And also don't give me any details you don't want me to read. And one last thing. If you enjoyed this, I am finally, I don't know why it's taking me so long, 
rolling out an entire series of classes from the BDSM 101, 12 classes in. I have a series so far of 12, and I might even add a couple more. I'm thinking about teaching them weekly or biweekly, hosting, I'm hosting it myself. I always teach for other people. I'm doing it myself. Hopefully, I will start that in November. So let me know your thoughts on that. And if you want to get in on some of these classes, watch my social media because I'll be announcing it or sign up for my mailing list because I'll send out an email. It's in the show notes. And all the links that I talked about here, links to some of the studies, to the Science of BDSM team and other stuff will all be in the show notes at americansexpodcast.com for this episode, which I think is 172, or will be in the episode description on whatever podcast player you're listening to. Okay. My mouth is dry and I'm tired and this was fun. I'll see you next week, friends. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.